All right, well, good morning again. So we are uh, again marching through the Gospel of Mark, and this week we have a, uh, an exciting, mysterious passage that is called the Transfiguration. It's called the Transfiguration because there's no other word to describe what uh, the disciples saw in front of them than that Jesus was remarkably, gloriously changed in their presence. He was transfigured. He was, uh, uh, became uh, a, a, a being, a person of such extreme radiance that they just call it the transfiguration. <laughs> and uh, this passage is clearly uh, influential upon the disciples. It's, it's recorded four times in the scriptures it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then Peter himself gives his own eyewitness account in Second Peter of this event. And uh, and we look at this passage, and, and maybe we say, you know, what what's going on? It's exciting. It's 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 significant. But but what is going on? And. Um, that's, that's a great question. I think that's the question we need to answer today. Uh, I want us to grasp that Jesus is being pastoral in this passage. He is doing this for the sake of his disciples. So what he is doing in this transfiguration is for the sake of the faith of his disciples. And I think maybe we can grasp what his concern is for his disciples if we, if we read the transfiguration in context of what we have gone through the last week and really the last two weeks, Jesus has, as we have seen, pivoted in the, in the Gospel of Mark from uh, going around Galilee and doing uh, miracles and teachings to doing this really intensive focus on the disciples. And that, that turn in the story happens at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus finally asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And at that point, the disciples say, you are the Christ. And, and, and from there, all the way to the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is focused on preparing his disciples for what it means that he is the Christ, which is vastly different than what uh, they were expecting in their own mind. They were expecting a Christ who would conquer and triumph over the, the enemies of Rome. And instead, Jesus reveals that he is going to suffer that he's going to lay down his life, that he is going to die, that he is going to accomplish a victory in a way that is uh, absolutely opposite of what they expected of the Messiah. And so last week specifically, Jesus takes his, his, his teaching that he will be a Messiah who suffers and dies to then speak to what does it mean to be a disciple. And, and last week, those were, those were heavy words. He said that anyone who wants to come after him needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That, that we, we must not give our soul to anything in this world because there is nothing in this world that is worthy of our soul. And then finally, that, that, he, that he says, anyone who is ashamed of me and of my words in this generation, I will be ashamed when I come with my angels and the glory of my Father. And so we see those, those, those strong words of make sure you are committed to Christ. Make sure you are counting the cost of discipleship, even the cost of suffering with your own life. Again, these words are completely outside of the realm of expectation for these disciples. 
The disciples thought they were early adopters of the conqueror. And now they are being told, you are early adopters of extreme suffering. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. And you might imagine, if you were in that space, maybe some questions, some confusion, maybe even inklings of doubt that you have put yourself on the right train, right? Maybe this is going in a direction I don't really want to take. And so these hard sayings would have the effect of, of greatly destabilizing Peter and, and John and, and all of these disciples' sense of who they are and who he is. And so, as I said, this week is Jesus' pastoral response to any of that confusion because he takes these disciples up on a mountain to confirm and encourage them that they are following the right person, that they are giving their life to the right person because he reveals that he is in fact the one who is the Lord of glory. So no matter how confusing or difficult or challenging their life with Jesus may be on this earth, they will have this in, in, indelible impression upon their mind that he is the one, that my confession that he is the Christ is sound and right. So the main point I, I, I take from this passage is that Christ shows us his glory to strengthen our faith. We need to be strengthened in our faith to face suffering, to face ridicule, to face contempt. And so one of the ways that Jesus does that is he says, behold my glory. Know the truth of me through my radiance. Now you may be saying, okay, well that's great, but where can I behold the glory of Jesus. I'm not in his physical presence. I'm not a disciple going up this particular mountain. I wasn't there. Where do we have to see Christ's glory? All Christians have two places that God has given us to see and behold the glory of Christ. The first is his resurrection. And the second is his word. And so this passage is, uh, the fancy word is a proleptic, which is to say something that happens kind of ahead of time of something that will happen in a, in a far more solid way in the future. The transfiguration is kind of a preview of Jesus' resurrection for these three particular disciples. But the resurrection is, is there for all disciples to see and experience the same glory that we are told about in the transfiguration. So as we go through this passage, we are to dwell upon his resurrection, the fact that we know that he is the one who rose from the dead. And so to make this personal, to make this apply to you today, let me put in front of you the question that you need to lay in front of this passage. What do you do with your doubt or your discouragement, or your fear in the faith. I'm assuming you have those. They come, doubts, discouragements, and fears. Maybe you have a particular one 
in your life right now. Maybe you have a, 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 an issue of, of, of knowledge or understanding or, or something about the Bible just seems contrary to what common sense says it should be. Or maybe you live in a, 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 a workplace or an environment where the, the idea of believing in a Savior is just constantly ridiculed through all sorts of gestures. What do you do with that doubt or that discouragement or that fear that comes in your faith. Uh, as a pastor, I get to have all sorts of problems and questions and concerns brought to me. And I'll, I'll be honest, a lot of times they're, they're more than I have any clue what to do with. You know, so, sometimes I'm, I'm pressed with, with something that I, I don't know what to say. Just uh, a couple weeks ago, a, a family friend of ours they had their, their 30-day-old baby pass away, you know? And, and I, I, I sit and I'm like, well, what do I, what do I say? How do I, con- how do I provide comfort or condolences to, to those sort of things that just rattle every part of you? A lot of times as a pastor, we get those questions. And, and if, I'm, if I'm absolutely honest, if I'm not in, in my own flesh, my answer is pretty much, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that particular doubt. But what I am able to do is to say, I do know the one who does know the answer to that doubt, the answer to that fear. And that is what this passage is all about, to make sure that you know the one who knows and can answer and can satisfy your doubts, your fears, your hurts. So what do you need spiritually today? I submit to you, whatever it is that you need spiritually, the answer is behold his glory. And it will put your questions, your fears, and your doubts in the perspective that will ultimately shrink them. So what do you need? You need to behold his glory. In the passage that we have in front of us, there are three ways that beholding Jesus' glory is is meant to strengthen our faith. And we're going to go through those in turn. The the, the first way that that Jesus' glory strengthens our faith is that it authenticates his identity. Jesus' glory authenticates his identity. So the passage starts with uh, Jesus taking up the mountain three of his disciples where he is about to be transfigured, right? So why, why three? Why does he just take these three disciples? Why not all 12? Uh, well, it was a really narrow path, right? No, I have no, had nothing to do with, with uh, the path he, he, he takes the three disciples, John, James, and Peter, because Jesus is a pastor, and he is developing each of his disciples for the ministry that they are being, um, that, that he knows is ahead of them. And he knows that John and uh, James and Peter are going to be particularly uh, uh, important leaders in the early church. And so he provides them 
this extra revelation so that they know who they are following, who they are preaching in a way that equips them to be witnesses and pastors to future pastors. Now, his taking these three up does not mean there's any, uh, any uh, slight on the nine that he leaves behind. If we, if, when we come back to next week, we're going to pick up the story of what happens to the nine who are at the bottom of the mountain. And let me tell you, Jesus is discipling those nine just as much as he's discipling the three up above. Because the nine are at the bottom of the mountain experiencing a very important part of pastoral ministry, which is failure. They need to experience failure in a prayerless ministry so that they never uh, go into the ministry that will happen after Jesus leaves them without prayerfulness. So Jesus is teaching the disciples at the bottom an, an essential lesson and the disciples on the mountain an essential lesson. He is discipling all 12 of what it means to be a disciple. So what is this event that happens on this mountain, this, mount, this event called the transfiguration? Essentially, the transfiguration is a glimpse of what Jesus says would be provided for some in verse 1. Verse 1, 9, 9 verse 1 says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now I, I expect every uh, one of us who has read through this passage the first time or early on, the, the question comes to mind, well, who, who, who saw it? Who, who, who saw the glory of the kingdom before dying? Who, where does the fulfillment uh, of this verse? And it appears as we read the passage that what Mark wants us to grasp is that it is these three that Jesus takes up the mountain. Because after Jesus says, some of you will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, Mark gives a very rare time stamp to the next thing that happens. He says, after six days, Jesus took three of these disciples up the mountain. It, that, that after six days connects it concretely to that statement. So Mark wants us to say that this statement needs to be, is being fulfilled for these three disciples six days later. So these three disciples fit the description that some standing here who were there will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. And Jesus gives them a full six days before he shows these three people what the kingdom of God coming in power looks like. And that is his transfiguration. So the transfiguration is a glimpse of the kingdom that has come with power. What the transfiguration is, is doing is it is revealing to the disciples the heavenly reality of Jesus. See, Jesus is in the incarnation. He has robed himself with flesh. He has taken on our humanity, but his humanity has been taken on to his divinity, which he always had. And this divinity has always been there, but it has been shielded. It has been veiled in the flesh of Jesus. At this time, at the transfiguration, though, Jesus allows the disciples to see his full glory, to see his divinity shining through his flesh. 
And it is literally indescribable. I, I actually love verse 2 in, in this passage um, where, where he says he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured really doesn't tell us anything. It's the word metamorphomai, uh, which is like metamorphosis. It just means he, he, was, he was changed. This guy, he was different. Can't, can't say exactly how, but he, whoa, he was different. And then verse 3 just kind of shows us <coughs> how desperate Mark is to try and put some words to, to this event. And, and I think verse 3 is, is, is a bit of a chuckle. His clothes, Mark says, became radiant, intensely white. You know how, how white they were? It, it, it was whiter than anybody could bleach. It, you just think about that. Your, your mama's bleach is better than anything she's ever bleached. It's so white. I mean, it just feels like bleach. Like you're <laughs> that, that, that's that's a a very pedestrian attempt to try and describe this radiance. It, 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 Mark is just trying to say it, it was not natural. It was not normal. It was incredible. It was indescribable. So this is a brief unveiling of Jesus' true glory. And what we need to grasp about the transfiguration is that this glory that shines through Jesus at this moment is the glory that Jesus always has. This is Jesus' natural state. He is full of glory. The glory that shines through here on this mountain is the glory that Jesus has always possessed as the second member of the Trinity. So if you go to John chapter 17, verse 5, where Jesus is praying to his Father, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus has always possessed this glory, but it has been shielded or veiled while he was on earth. You see, the transfiguration reveals that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. He has hidden some of his glory behind his flesh, but he is always God in the flesh. And so th this is Mark's way of describing John 1.14, which says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Behold that. Behold that. Look at that. Our Jesus is the Lord of glory. The Jesus who walked this earth is God in the flesh. Sometimes we lose the, the grandeur of the incarnation. We, we overemphasize his humanity, but at all times, Jesus is God with us. And that you know this, 
that you know that Jesus is the Lord of glory, that he is a God incarnate, is a gift. You see, Jesus took these three disciples up the mountain to give them the gift of seeing who he really is. And like I said at the, at the beginning of this sermon, we all have that gift when we look at the resurrection. But to know who Jesus truly is, is a glorious gift. The transfiguration was Jesus showing himself to these three disciples. But when we go to uh, Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told this. For God, who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, you knowing Jesus as the Lord of glory is a miracle. It is a gift. It is an extreme grace of God He has shown his glory into your heart just as miraculously and dramatically as he spoke into the darkness of creation. Let there be light. That your heart right now says, I know the Lord of glory. I have seen Jesus and he is beautiful. It's a gift. It is a gift. It is because it is a gift that so many people that you work with and live with don't know him this way. Because God had to shine the glory of Jesus. He had to put the transfiguration into your heart as a supernatural act of grace. And so dwell upon the fact that you have been given this reality. You have been given the gift of knowing his glory. What is that gift for? Why why have you been given this, this amazing gift? Well, like Peter, it is to assure our confession and to make us bold in our witness. You see, Peter return to this moment again and again. When we look at his last writing, as he was seriously uh, days from death, he shares with his young church these words in his last letter, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, Peter returned to this moment again and again because it provided him strength and it provided him knowledge that his confession is in the true Savior. And the same is given to us when we look upon the resurrection. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, for all of us, we can look into the fact that our Savior is raised from the dead as the authentication that our confession is sound and as the encouragement to be a witness because it is the truth, right? It's okay that sometimes we have doubts, sometimes we have questions without answers, but we can all look at the resurrection. We can all look at the fact that, yeah, he died. He left a tomb empty. He was seen visibly alive by many people whose testimony to what they saw, they kept all the way through their own death. We can look at the resurrection to authenticate it is right that I believe in him. It is right that I trust in him because he is the one that testified that he is the way, the truth, and the life as no one else ever has by raising himself from the dead. And because we know that, because we know he is the resurrected one, just like Peter, we are sent to witness to that truth. There are all sorts of confusions in this world, but we can point everyone to what is certain. The tomb was empty. The one who claimed to be the Lord of glory proved he was the Lord of glory by rising from the dead. Put your faith in him. And many of the questions that you have, the doubts and the fears that you have, will become strangely dim. Right? So my challenge to you is, have you really dwelled upon the resurrection? Let the truth of the resurrection, which is not hard to ascertain be applied to your doubts and your fears now if if you are a person who has never taken the faith seriously i challenge you what do you think happened what do you think explains the the testimony of the resurrection have you actually investigated the evidence? Have you done the hard work? Because I will tell you, we are 20 centuries after the resurrection, and I have read every alternative hypothesis that has been generated over the last 20 centuries, and none of them have won the day. People are still trying to figure out some explanation because the one that, that seemed to be so good 500 years ago, nobody believes in it anymore. The only explanation that has explained all the facts and that has won century after century after century is the one that the Bible gives us. That the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life left the tomb empty because he rose again. So I challenge any skeptic, look into the resurrection. What is your explanation? So Jesus 
glory strengthens our faith first by authenticating his identity, but second, it also establishes his word. So we're told that, that there are two other visitors that, that show up at the transfiguration. There's Moses and there's Elijah. Uh, they're there. And, and one of the uh, kind of classic explanations is that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so this is a testimony of the law and the prophets to Jesus. But that's probably not the best explanation. I think what we really have here is just two of the, the figures of the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament uh, coming to be witnesses that the kingdom has arrived in Christ. Moses and Elijah are, are, are two people who are serving as a witness from the Old Testament that this Jesus, the one who is the, the, the answer to the promise of the coming kingdom, has arrived. So you can go and you can look uh, at Malachi, the, the last book in our Old Testament, and we can see that Moses and Elijah brought together as witnesses uh, remember the law of my servant Moses, Malachi says, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that great and awesome day of the Lord is another synonym for the coming of the kingdom. And so we have Moses and we have Elijah mentioned in Malachi, and here we have Moses and Elijah kind of fulfilling that that. Uh, passage by by witnessing that Christ is the one who brings the kingdom. Now, if you look at this passage, there are several parallels between the the giving of the old covenant to Moses on Sinai with the the, uh, events that happen here in the transfiguration. So look again at verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so we we have a table on the the screen. It just kind of shows us several parallels between what happened with Moses at Mount Sinai and what's happening with Jesus here. We have the fact that uh, there is a cloud uh, of God's glory. There is a voice that comes from the cloud. There is uh, the the shining. Moses had a shining face. Jesus shone uh, from from his nature. And then there is also uh, at the bottom of the mountain in Moses' day, all the people are, are failing miserably. And we'll find out next week that all the people are failing at the bottom of the mountain uh, that Jesus is on. So, so these, these parallels in this table suggest that just as Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, Jesus here is, is being presented as the mediator of the new covenant, the covenant of, uh, that, that, that is Jesus's um, forgiveness and life in him. And so the transfiguration is got within it an establishment of Jesus as the word of God. When this cloud comes down, we can go on to the, the next slide or whatever. Well, we'll get there, but that's fine. When this uh, cloud comes down, the, the, the cloud that covers the mountain is the same cloud that we see in Exodus when the tabernacle is built. And at the very last verse, we're told that the cloud of God's glory descends into the tabernacle. That cloud is, is a unique manifestation of the presence and glory of God. In fact, it's called the Shekinah cloud in, in, uh, in, in the scriptures. And so this cloud is the Shekinah, the glory of God descending down upon this mountain. And it is there to witness 
to God's presence, God's blessed presence uh, upon, upon Jesus. So the cloud descends, which uh, would have been an, uh, almost a terrifying experience. The cloud descends, and from the cloud comes the voice of God saying, Behold, this is my son. Listen to him. So the transfiguration is again to confirm the identity of Jesus, but in addition to confirming his identity, to command his disciples to listen to him, to pay attention to his words. The transfiguration declares that Jesus' word is authoritative and true to his disciples. Now why why does this declaration from heaven come at this particular time? Well, again, we have to consider what, is the, what are the words that Jesus has just spoken? He has just spoken words that were completely contrary to all Jews' expectations. There was no category for a suffering Messiah in their mind. And so that Jesus has said that I am the Messiah who is going to suffer and die, and you are going to follow me on the path of suffering... God says to these disciples, listen to him. The word of heaven is there to say that the words that my son is speaking are trustworthy and true. And so believe that the Messiah must suffer and die. So again, The transfiguration is here to show us that God's word, the words of Jesus, are true. The glory of God shines to establish his word. Now, how do we encounter God's glory in in the word of Jesus today? How How do we encounter the glory of God in the word of God today? One of the amazing things that happens when you pour yourself into scripture, is that God confirms the word of Jesus with his spirit. When you read scripture, you have the spirit of God whispering and convicting and confirming and establishing that word as not just some other written book. But there is an experience when you read the scriptures that is different And when you read Charles Dickens, you hear in the reading of the word, the Spirit's confirmation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, you know that you are reading the word of God. You know that you are uh, God's people that the word is written to because of this. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You see, God shines through his word to say to us, he is my son, listen to him today. That is what the Spirit is doing. That is the glory of the word of God that we have because the Spirit accompanies us when we read it. I remember my path to becoming a Christian was a 
a little different. It didn't come through an evangelist. It came through me being challenged to read the word of God for myself, to read the Bible myself. And I read it with an intent to destroy it. I read it with an intent to debate it, to mock it, to treat it with contempt. So I did not read it with a tender heart. And yet, as I read it, the attributes of truth, the attributes of goodness, the attributes of beauty just could not be denied of the scriptures. And I knew after about 30 days of reading the Bible that Jesus is not made up. He is not a myth. He is who he says he is. He is the Lord of glory who has died for me. And so what I am, I am stressing to you is that the word of God has glory in it. The word of God speaks powerfully to those who read it. I would also submit to you that the vast majority of Christians that are not on fire, that are not excited about Jesus, that are not growing and, and, and changing and, and moving from one degree of glory to another, as the Bible says, are Christians who have fallen out of actually reading the word for themselves. The word of God has the Holy Spirit coming alongside to convict, to confirm, to transform, to renew your mind. So I encourage you to never neglect the opportunity to read the word. I would also suggest don't, don't approach it with skepticism. Approach it with a heart that wants to learn, a heart that wants to hear. Pray that God illuminates to you what he wants you to see in the word. Be a willing recipient of the glory of the word and you will experience the glory of the word. So, Jesus' glory strengthens our faith by authenticating his identity, by establishing his word. And then third, and my favorite point of all three of these, is Jesus' glory heightens his sacrifice. So after the transfiguration, Jesus is there left alone with the three disciples. And we come to verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the disciples start having a discussion on the way down. The first thing is Jesus commands them to silence about this being raised from the dead question. And so they're stumped about being raised from the dead because being raised from the dead again means that Jesus is going to die. And so they don't know what that means. That still doesn't compute. And so instead, they, they kind of come from a different angle. They just saw Elijah, so they asked the question, well, now what about the prophecy that Elijah comes before the coming of the kingdom? Shouldn't we, should, you know, wh wh what's the story with Elijah? And then Jesus shares that this prophecy of Elijah has been fulfilled in John the Baptist, that John the Baptist carried the spirit of Elijah, or carried the ministry of Elijah, and he was the forerunner that pointed to Jesus. 
But then what happens to John the Baptist? John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. And so Jesus says, just as, as you think that Elijah is, a, is, is going to be a picture of glory only, the reality is that John the Baptist, who fulfilled Elijah, had what happened to him, which was suffering and death, just as it was supposed to. And so the story of Elijah does not change the fact that it is written that the Son of Man, himself Jesus, has come to suffer and die. So, the transfiguration occurs between two passion predictions. You know, we had this first passion prediction before the transfiguration, and then right after the transfiguration, as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus returns to the story of his resurrection and the story of the fact that he is going to be like John the Baptist and suffer too. So the transfiguration is, is in between these two. Why does the transfiguration show up between these two passion predictions. The reason is that we interpret the passion in light of the transfiguration. You see, the transfiguration says to us that the coming suffering of Jesus is not an accident. It's part of the plan. That the suffering that is coming is not failure. It's sacrifice that Jesus has chosen. You see, the transfiguration shows us something profound. It shows us how much Christ lowered himself for us. Because on the transfiguration, we know exactly who Jesus is. We know his true nature, that he is the Lord of glory. To me, when I read this passage, <coughs> the most beautiful words are found in verse 9. Where after the transfiguration, we are told that he comes down the mountain. Here's why those words are so beautiful. Jesus could have stayed in glory. Jesus could have stayed in glory. He was lacking nothing with his father. He was well-pleasing to his father. There was no gap between him and his father. The glory that he had, he had from the beginning. And he could have stayed in glory. But he chose to come down the mountain. He came down the mountain to go to the cross. What Jesus does in the transfiguration is show that he is the Lord of glory and also the one who chose the cross for us. Mark 9, 9 is a picture of that beautiful song in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, where we are told, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of glory came down the mountain to empty himself, to take the form of a servant, 
to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came down to bring us to heaven. He was not put down here against his will. He came down to bring us to heaven. He left the Shekinah to enter the darkness. He put aside his glory to bear our shame. The Lord of glory was crucified to bring us into his glory. He came down the mountain. What a mystery of love and grace that he went from the most beautiful, glorious, enjoyable experience to suffer the greatest abasement, shame, and pain. We behold Jesus' glory to strengthen our faith. You see, only knowing the transfiguration, only knowing the true nature of Jesus allows us to see how great is the gift of the gospel. It was the Lord of glory on that cross. It was the Lord of glory who chose the nails. It was the Lord of glory that was the purchase price of your sins. Does that not heighten our awareness of his sacrifice? So I leave you with just one question. Are you being a good steward of the glory that has been revealed to you? You have been given the, the light of the brilliance of Christ shown in your hearts. You have been given his precious word. And your soul has been purchased by the Lord of glory upon the cross. Are you being a good steward of that glory that has been revealed to you? How are we to do that? Beloved, we steward his glory by knowing him, by believing him, and by worshiping him. Amen.